1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 2, 16. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of, of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that not many may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. And so it, is, it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith may not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power." We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him, and these things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God, for who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. 
Thanks, Pastor Anne. So there is, is nothing quite like being taped to a pole half naked in the dead of winter to make you feel powerless. Uh, it was uh, one day after school, my wrestling coach, he was running late and we were all hanging out in the wrestling room and uh, fooling around, doing whatever, and one of the kids looks over and just sees the endless supply of athletic tape uh, that we stored in the wrestling room and just had this brilliant idea. Uh, and the first victim was Larry. We taped him up, brought him out, and just kind of left him on the track. And, uh, and then we came back, and my wrestling coach still wasn't there, and somebody saw me and was like, hey, what about little Nauta? Uh, I was little Nauta because I was both the youngest kid on the team and the smallest kid on the team at the time. And I have two older brothers who, at this point, had graduated, but a lot of the older kids wrestled with my brother. So I was, I was a little naught. I was the runt of the litter and the obvious choice to be taped. So they, they all come and tackle me and, you know, tape me up. And then they carry me outside. And, uh, and then they see a pole, a uh, basketball pole. And they say, ooh, let's tape him to the pole. So I am taped to the pole wearing nothing but shorts and tape in January, and I am powerless. Uh, there's no way I could rip the tape. There's no wriggling out of it. All I can do is just cry out for help. Like, I had no other options. I was completely powerless in that moment, desperate for somebody to come and rescue me. Uh, and fortunately, teachers came by. They heard my cries. They helped me out. It was all good. For the record, this wasn't like a traumatic event. This is funny. Like, I even found it funny. But, <laughs> but in that moment, I, I was powerless. And, and maybe you've never been taped to a pole half naked in the dead of winter, but I bet you felt powerless before. Especially over the last couple of years, as we've been dealing with things like a global pandemic and shutdowns and social distancing and all of these kind of effects on the outside, race wars and, and political tensions and all of these things on the outside, which then affect all the things on the inside and we're facing things like depression and financial struggles and marriage struggles, you know, at an all-time high and all of this is happening and it seems like there's very little we can do about some of these things and we just feel... Powerless. Powerless to affect change. Powerless to bring something good out of the situation. And we're in the second week of this series that we're calling Supernatural Power for Everyday People, where we're going through the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're trying to go through verse by verse. And so today we're going to pick up right where we left off last week. We're going to pick up in chapter 1, verse 18. And here Paul is talking to a church, and he's letting them know there is power. There's supernatural power that they can bring into their everyday lives, but they're not experiencing it. And he starts off by, by talking about this power in verse 18. He says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. So he says this, this message of the cross, that's shorthand for the gospel, the message of Jesus' perfect life, his sacrificial death, his victorious resurrection, his ascension, his, his coming again. But it all hinges upon the cross, this moment where he gives his life for us. The message of the cross, that's foolishness, he says to the world. It's nonsense. It doesn't even make sense to the world. But for us, he says, it is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God. Of God. Paul actually says much the same thing in Romans 1. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. There is power in the gospel, supernatural power that we can bring into our everyday lives. And Paul is reminding the church in Corinth they have power. But this is a group of Christians. He's not talking to a group of unbelievers saying, hey guys, you need to believe the, the gospel so you can experience his power. He's saying, no, 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 you Christians in Corinth, there's power in the gospel and you're not experiencing it. 
And Paul goes on to quote from Isaiah, and he, he says in this quote that he's going to frustrate their intelligence and he's going to destroy the wisdom of the wise. But if we go back to Isaiah, to where this quote comes from, and we read what comes right before it, we see why God is going to frustrate their wisdom and he's going to destroy their intelligence. Look at this, this passage in Isaiah. It's a, actually a verse that Jesus quotes at one point. He says, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Right? They have this, this empty sort of worship. He says, their worship of me is based on merely human rules. Remember that, merely human rules and they have, uh, that they have been taught. He says, therefore, and this is the quote we get in 1 Corinthians, the wisdom of the wise will perish, the intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. So God is going to frustrate their wisdom and intelligence because they have this empty worship because it's based on human rules. So the, the Corinthian church, they heard the message of Jesus, they heard about this supernatural power, and what they were trying to do is now take what they could glean from Jesus and from Scripture, but then bring it back and apply it to, to the human rules of the world. And Paul goes on, he says, where's the wise person? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the philosopher of this age? Hasn't God made foolish the wisdom of the world? God has shown that the, the wisdom of the world is, is foolishness. And there's some nuance here, because first he calls out the wise person. And then he calls out the teacher of the law. So Paul is talking to a, a group of people that is comprised some of Jewish converts to Christianity and some of Greek converts to Christianity. In the church, there's some tension between the Jews and the Greeks in this spot. And, and Paul calls out the wise person. This is like the Greek sophist. This is the, who the Greeks would look to to understand how the world works. And then he calls out the teacher of the law, the scribe. This is who the Jews would look to as the wise person who would tell them how the world works, and both of them make up the philosophers of this age. That's a, a key idea in this passage, the philosophers of this age. Later, Paul will talk about the wisdom of this age. And, and if we're not careful, it could seem like Paul is harping on like wisdom and intelligence, and some people have kind of taken this passage out of context to say, like, and justify that Christians should be like anti-intellectual and we should be against the academy and we should be anti-science and blah, blah, blah. none of that is what Paul is talking about, right? We shouldn't be anti-intellectuals. We shouldn't be anti-the academy. We, we need Christians in all of these spheres. That's all really important. That's not what Paul's talking about. When he talks about philosophers of the age and the wisdom of the age, what he's talking about is the way the world works. It's kind of like, he's not talking about just education and wisdom. He's talking about like a worldview or a schema for how, how the world functions and how we are able to uh, succeed in this world. It's kind of like, uh, take a deck of cards, for instance. So most of, most of the, the cultures and societies of the world, all of them, we're, we're all different, right? There's nuances and, and differences to every culture and every society in the world. But, but a lot of the practices, there's a lot of overlap. Like a lot of the pieces look pretty similar. They're just used differently. And so you, you take a deck of cards, a standard deck of cards, 52 cards, 54. I have a couple of jokers here. Uh, but each of these cards, uh, depending on the game that you're playing, depending on the game that you're playing, these cards can mean something different. And they're played differently. And they can have different values, even though 
the, the cards look the same. And so if you think about it, like most cultures, most societies have something that looks a little bit like marriage. Maybe it's not quite the same as we see it. Most societies have something like interpersonal relationships and they have social codes and they have laws and most societies have some level of morality and they have some sort of religious institutions and, and most societies have some way of dealing with, with death. Most societies, even though they might have different ways, they, they all have the same cards, right? But what each card means and how it's played is determined by the rules of the game. And when Paul talks about the wisdom of the age, what he's talking about, he's talking about the game. He's talking about the, the rules of the game and, and the purpose of the game that defines what these cards are worth and how they're played. And so what the, the Corinthians were doing is they were coming to Jesus and they were trying to glean wisdom from him and they were trying to, you know, figure out, you know, how to make the most of their, you know, their marriage or their singleness and their religion and how to deal with death and all of those things, all these same things that all of us are trying to figure out. And, and what they were doing is they were taking what they could glean from Jesus, but then were going right back with their deck and they were playing Corinth's game. And so rather than, you know, seeing that Jesus is redefining all of this, they were trying to figure out how to better play Corinth's game and using Jesus to their advantage. And Paul is calling that out and he's saying, the game, the game that Corinth is playing, whether you're a Greek or you're a Jew, that game is, is foolishness according to God. And we know that because Jesus rendered it that way. He goes on to say that Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. What he's saying here, he's calling out the Jews and the Greeks, and he's saying Jews, in their game, as they're shuffling these cards in their game, power is important. And, and for the Greeks, it's wisdom. But Jesus comes on the scene, and he comes with neither the, the power or the wisdom that they're looking for. In fact, he doesn't play their game at all. According to their game, Jesus just loses. And so the, the Corinthians, even though they're, they're trying to hold on to Jesus, they're still trying to win Corinth's game. But when we look to Jesus, we realize that Jesus, here he is, he's Jesus, he's hanging on a cross. Here he is, the son of God, earth's mightiest loser. Paul is reminding him, this game that Corinth is playing, it doesn't jive with the gospel. And you're not going to experience the power of the gospel as long as you're trying to just take what you can from Jesus and take it back to play the game of the world better. And he, he continues on. He says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. And what Paul is doing here is he's actually drawing out He's drawing out the values that, under, uh, th that are the foundation of the game that Corinth is playing. These three values, wisdom, influence, and, and noble birth. Wisdom. See, in a culture where wisdom is one of the key values, if that's the game that you're playing, then you're going to try to gain wisdom. You're going to try to become the wise person. There's a couple of ways you could do this. You could actually become wise. You could become learned. You can get degrees and read all the books and all of that. The other way to do it is to just avoid being the fool. And in a culture, in a world, in a society that values wisdom above all, it's really easy for you to become the fool. You know how you become the fool? You disagree with me. <laughs> because if you disagree with me, one of us is wise and one's the fool, and I'm the de facto wise person, so you're the fool. 
In a culture where wisdom is valued, when there's disagreements, when there's differings of opinion, when people might just be wrong or misinformed or misguided in a moment, they're, they're not just wrong or misguided or have a differing opinion, they're fools. And where wisdom is a key value of the game, that also means they're, they're not just fools, they're losers. They are fools and they are losers. And you guys know it's so easy so easy to just look at the people that don't see the world the way that we do and say, those fools, those losers, and just disregard them. And this was happening not just in the world of Corinth, but it was happening in the church. I know that's hard to believe that that could happen in a church, but it did in Corinth, right? Of course, we've seen it. In a world where wisdom is valued, then anybody can just become the fool and disregarded. The second value is influence. Influence, where uh, Corinth was a really unique place in its day and time because in Corinth, uh, Robert touched on this last week, Corinth was destroyed about 100 years earlier and just kind of wiped out. And then sometimes, sometime later, Rome made it a colony. And it was first inhabited mostly by freed slaves and retired military vets. All right? Neither of those groups were kind of noble people in the rest of society, but here was this kind of new colony, and they could just go. And in this new colony, anybody could be anybody, because they didn't have elites, right? And so people were able to work up and, you know, become influential in society, even if you were just a freed slave or whatever. But it didn't matter, because who cares? It's Corinth. Until, of course, they realized that Corinth is this really great port city, and Corinth becomes really popular and really wealthy, all right? And so here it is, and you have these people that might have been freed slaves or military vets, and they shouldn't be anybody, but now they're influential people in a bustling city that is influential to the, the rest of the Roman Empire. And so there's this idea that if you come to Corinth, anybody, any nobody could become somebody. They called it the Corinthian dream. That's not true. Uh, <laughs> but... But there is a sense that if you go to Corinth, you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You can become something more than you are. You can achieve a place of influence regardless of who you are. And everybody, you know, they knew that was a possibility and that was a driving force for them. Everybody wanted that influence. And of course, we can, we can appreciate that a little bit. We, in our day and age, we, we actually have a job called being an influencer. Like, that's a job. That's not a job description. Like, that, people are social media influencers. Like, that's the thing they do. They just influence people by getting people to follow them, right? And, and we all want to be influencers. And, uh, of course, you know, there's the whole celebrity culture and all of that. And there's, there's a select few people that get obsessed with that. Most of us aren't obsessed with that. But we do want influence, right? We want the promotion. We want to be the person calling the shots. We want to have the power in our, in our relationships, in our marriages, in our families. We, we want to be the ones who have the influence, have the power in those relationships. In the Corinthian church, they were, they were fa facing these same things, not just in the world, but even in the church. They were, they were fighting for power and influence. They were playing by Corinth's rules, the rules of Corinth's game in the church. And the third value is uh, this, this value of lineage. He talks about noble birth. And in Corinth, uh, you know, there were, there were a few people who, you know, as the city grew, people of true nobility would move in and, you know, have positions of influence. But again, Corinth wasn't like other cities. And so being of noble birth wasn't just about family line. It could actually be about your, your heritage, your, your nationality. And of course, we see this at work in the church in Corinth. 
Because Robert mentioned last week, there were, there were the Roman citizens, they were at the top of the food chain in society, and then there were the Greeks below them, and then below them were the Jews, right? They were the marginalized people group in, in Corinth. But at the same time, it doesn't matter which group you, you fall into, and yes, maybe they had different positions in, uh, in society. No matter which of those groups you fell into, you could see a way why your particular group was better than the others. You know, the Romans could easily, the Roman citizens would be like, well, of course we're better than everybody. We, we own the place. Like, we came in, we conquered this place. And the Greeks were, you know, well, you think you're better, but we're the ones that made this place even worth coming into. Like, of course we're the, we're the smarter, we're the wiser ones. And the Jews are like, well, actually, we're the people of God, like the chosen people of God. And they just kind of play that chosen people trump card. And, and that comes into the church. And so there's this, this division and they're all kind of claiming, you know, how their particular people group is better than the others. Again, this is really, really hard for us to imagine how that might play out in our society. Uh, but these values, these values of the world were still shaping the church in Corinth because they were saying... All right, they were looking at their cards and they were saying, all right, we've been dealt these cards. We want to see what we can get from Jesus, bring it into this deck so that we can play Corinth's game better. And Paul says, no, no, no. Don't you remember who you were when Jesus called you? He says, God chose you. He calls them the foolish things, the weak things, the lowly things, the despised things, the things that are not. God chose you when you were all of this, when you were nothing, when you were losers in Corinth. God chose you not to make you winners in Corinth, he says, but to nullify the things that are, to actually just eliminate these categories and say that these are the values of Corinth, but these aren't the values of the kingdom of God. Don't play by these rules. And the reason he nullifies them, he says, is so that no one can boast. So that no one can boast. See, boasting, boasting is what winners get to do, right? You guys aren't going to believe this, but my wife is the worst winner. Like the wor- I know, it's hard to believe. She's so sweet. She's so kind. She's so compassionate. She is the worst winner. I think it's probably only when she beats me, but she, like, her, her victory laps will go on for days. Like she will you know, keep dancing and boasting for days anytime she beats me at anything. It's the worst. Uh, but this is what winners get to do. They get to do the victory dance in the end zone because they won, right? Boasting is a sign of winning, and Jesus is saying, nope, no boasting. Nobody wins at Corinth's game. In fact, it's not even a real game. It's made up and it's nonsense. It's foolishness, he's saying. He's telling this church in Corinth, stop playing Corinth's game. Stop trying to take scripture and Jesus and the gospel and apply it to Corinth's game so you could play Corinth's game better. Nobody wins that game. And then he holds up different values. He says, it's because of him that you're in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. And what Paul is doing here is he's replacing the wisdom of Corinth with the righteousness of God. He says, it's not about your wisdom, it's about your righteousness. And it's not about influence, it's about holiness. It's not about how many people are following you, it's about who you're following. And he says, it's not about who you were born to be, it's about who you've been redeemed to be. And you look at these values, and if God comes to me and he says, hey Trevor, new game, and it's all about your righteousness and your holiness and your redemption, I'm going to take one look at my hand. I'm going to say, go fish. <laughs> I just, I don't, I don't have these values. But Paul reminds us that it's not ours. It's because of him that you're in Christ Jesus. 
It's not our righteousness and our holiness and our redemption. It's his righteousness, his holiness, his redemption that is imputed upon us so that we have one. And that's why Paul ends this by saying, hey guys, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. He's saying, boast, do it, boast. You, you are winners, you've already won. Boast, do your victory dance, run laps, do whatever you have to, celebrate it. You've won. It's already won. You don't need to go back and start figuring out how to play Corinth's game. You've already won. Of course, begs the question, though, then, what are all these cards for, right? Because it seems like these cards came from God. Things like, like marriage and, and finances, singleness, church life. These aren't arbitrary. These things came from God. So what are we supposed to do with these cards? If we're not supposed to play Corinth's game, and Jesus already won the game, what do we do with these? And Paul goes on to show us. He says, so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I didn't come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I love this. Resolved to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And here, here's something I love, all right? He says he didn't come with eloquence. All right, I was at a, a workshop a few years ago, and the, the speaker at the work, workshop, this is just brilliant biblical scholar, uh, he was talking about this passage and noted, you know, how Paul talks about how he didn't come with eloquence. Well, he then points back to uh, some of the verses that we looked at earlier in chapter 1, verses 22 to 24, and he, he starts reading them to us in Greek. Now, none of us understand Greek, but we were able to hear as he was reading them that they, there was a specific rhyme and meter to them, that as Paul was riffing, he was like riffing a poem in Greek, all right, as he was just talking about this. Not only that, he goes to point out that even though he was writing in Greek and it was rhyming in Greek and had a, you know, this meter, that it was actually a Hebrew poetic structure. It wasn't even a Greek poetic structure. So Paul is talking to Jews and he's talking to Greeks and he, on the fly, writes a poem in Greek following a Hebrew structure. Paul could do eloquence. <laughs> he knew how to be eloquent. And when he came into Corinth, he said, nah, I'm not going to play that card. I'm not going to play that card. That's not what you need. What I'm going to do is instead, I'm going to show you Christ and him crucified. I'm going to build something else. And it says, he, he comes in, he says, I, I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. Paul, he could have come in as a champion. He could have come in as a winner. He came in as a loser, though. He didn't use his cards to win the game. Instead, he used his cards to build something, to build a picture of the gospel. And, and what if God has given us these cards to humanity, things like marriage and family and finances and wealth and poverty and, and conflict and laws and all of this. He gave it to humanity, not so that we could play stupid games in Corinth. But what if he gave it to us so that we could build something? We build something beautiful. Something that, that is a picture of the gospel. And what if it's not just about, about my cards? Because, of course, you can't build much with 52 cards, but we, we start bringing out all these other decks, and I, I take your card, and you, you throw in some of your cards, and, and we start building something together. 
We take our marriages and we say, what I'm going to do with my marriage is I'm not going to try to have a winning marriage. I'm going to try to have a marriage that becomes a picture of the gospel. And we don't say, oh, you know, in this, this relational conflict in my life, I'm not going to try to win the argument. What I'm going to try to do is I'm going to try to give a picture of the gospel, a picture that is beautiful and a picture that is durable, something that is lasting, enduring. We're doing it together. See, this is what Paul is inviting us into, saying, stop, stop playing this game. Stop playing this game. Stop trying to use Jesus to make you better at playing Corinth's game. And I know, I know for some of you, you're here today and, you know, you have conflict in your life. Like, there are people in your life that, you know, maybe family members or friends and there's tension there and maybe they're wrong. And, you, you know, you're hoping that you're going to come to the series and you're going to learn from Paul how to, like, teach them that they're wrong so they become better people and you can restore that. And, and you're not going to find any of that in 1 Corinthians. You're going to find Paul saying, actually, why don't you just lose? Just lose. So instead of winning the argument, you become a, a beautiful, enduring picture of the gospel. And some of you, you know, your marriage is it's in a bad place right now. And you're hoping you're going to come to 1 Corinthians and Paul's going to give you five tips to have a winning marriage. And you're going to be sorely disappointed when you get to the section in 1 Corinthians on marriage and he gives you none of that. None of that. Not because having a winning marriage is bad, but because it's not about winning this game. In fact, some of you might be in a tough marriage, not so that the marriage gets better, but so that you can love in the midst of a tough marriage, so that you can actually be a picture of the gospel. Some of you are here and you're dealing with financial strife and you want you know, answers about wealth management and Paul's not going to give you any of them. You're going to get Paul saying, actually, why don't, why don't you just embrace your poverty? You know, Jesus, oh, Jesus, he was rich, but he became poor so that through his poverty, you might become rich. All throughout 1 Corinthians, Paul doesn't give us any advice how to do Corinth's game better. What he does is he gives us this picture of what it looks like to display the gospel in a beautiful and enduring way in the situations that we currently find ourselves in. And it's awesome. When you see it, it's awesome. It's not easy, but it is beautiful. And, and guess what? Remember, you're not the one bringing the power. The gospel is the power. There's power there. You don't need to bring the power. And you might be saying, I feel too weak. I don't have what it takes. I, I, if I step into that, I, I'm going to get crushed. And, and Paul is saying, no, you have the power. The gospel brings the power. You just have to, you just have to do it. You may say, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. How do, I, how do I even do this? How do I figure it out? And, and here's Paul's encouragement. He says, we do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature. Now, when he, the scholars point out, when he talks about mature here, he's not talking about mature Christians versus infantile Christians. He's talking about the mature being anyone who's in Jesus. Like, they've come to maturity in the sense that they've put their faith in Jesus. He says, but, but it, the wisdom that we're bringing to the mature, it's not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that's been hidden. And he spends a lot of time talking about how this, this mystery is hidden from the world and that like, without the Spirit of God, we can't even understand this. In fact, he says, the person without the Spirit does not accept these things, and he says that they cannot accept these things. So without the Spirit of God, we, we don't, not only do we not, we choose not to, but we can't if we wanted to accept these things. But Paul is talking to a group of people that has accepted these things. 
He's talking to a group of people that have already accepted Jesus, which means if, if they do and they can, that means the Spirit is already at work in them. And that's his, his closing comment here. He says, we have the mind of Christ. And so you might feel like you're ill-equipped to actually do this. You might feel like you don't have what it takes to, to be the loser. Sometimes you get to be the loser. Isn't that fun? <laughs> Lose Corinth's game because you've already won. And he's going to bring the power for you to do that. And you already have the mind of Christ so that you can discern what to do when you need to do it. And Paul's going to give us examples as we go throughout 1 Corinthians of how to do this, and he's going to show different ways, but he's not going to cover everything. But you have the mind of Christ, and if you, this is what you're seeking to do, the Spirit comes in to help you do it. To not win, but to build something beautiful and enduring, a kingdom that displays the glory of God.